Chapter twenty four of The Man from Glengarry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. The Man from Glengarry, A Tale of the Ottawa by Ralph Connor. Chapter twenty four. The West. The meeting of the shareholders of the British American Lumber and Coal Company was, on the whole, a stormy one, for the very best of reasons, the failure of the company to pay dividends. The annual report which the President presented showed clearly that there was a slight increase in expenditure and a considerable falling off in sales, and it needed but a little mathematical ability to reach the conclusion that in a comparatively short time the company would be bankrupt. The shareholders were thoroughly disgusted with the British Columbia end of the business, and were on the lookout for a victim. Naturally, their choice fell upon the manager. The concern failed to pay. It was the manager's business to make it pay, and the failure must be laid to his charge. Their confidence in their manager was all the more shaken by the reports that had reached them of his peculiar fads, his reading-room, library, etc. These were sufficient evidence of his lack of business ability. He was undoubtedly a worthy young man, but there was every ground to believe that he was something of a visionary, and men with great hesitation entrust hard cash to the management of an idealist. It was perhaps unfortunate for Mr. Sinclair that he should be appealed to upon this point, for his reluctance to express an opinion as to the ability of the manager, and his admission that possibly the young man might properly be termed a visionary, brought Colonel Thorpe sharply to his feet. Mr. Sinclair, said the colonel in a cool, cutting voice, will not hesitate to bear testimony to the fact that our manager is a man whose integrity cannot be tampered with. If I mistake not, Mr. Sinclair has had evidence of this. Mr. Sinclair hastened to bear the very strongest testimony to the manager's integrity. And Mr. Sinclair, I have no doubt, went on the colonel, will be equally ready to bear testimony to the conspicuous ability our manager displayed while he was in the service of the Raymond and Sinclair Lumber Company. Mr. Sinclair promptly corroborated the colonel's statement. We are sure of two things, therefore, continued the colonel, that our manager is a man of integrity, and that he has displayed conspicuous business ability in his former positions. At this point the colonel was interrupted, and his attention was called to the fact that the reports showed an increase of expenditure for supplies and for wages, and, on the other hand, a falling off in the revenue from the stores. But the colonel passed over these points as insignificant. It is clear, he proceeded, that the cause of failure does not lie in the management, but in the state of the market. The political situation in that country is very doubtful, and this has an exceedingly depressing effect upon business. Then, interrupted a shareholder, it is time the company should withdraw from that country and confine itself to a district where the market is sure and the future more stable. What about these fads, Colonel? asked another shareholder. These reading rooms, libraries, etc., do you think we pay a man to establish that sort of thing? To my mind they simply put a lot of nonsense into the heads of the working men, and are the chief cause of dissatisfaction. Upon this point the colonel did not feel competent to reply. 
Consequently, the feeling of the meeting became decidedly hostile to the present manager, and a resolution was offered demanding his resignation. It was also agreed that the board of directors should consider the advisability of withdrawing altogether from British Columbia, inasmuch as the future of that country seemed to be very uncertain. Thereupon Colonel Thorpe rose and begged leave to withdraw his name from the directorate of the company. He thought it was unwise to abandon a country where they had spent large sums of money without a thorough investigation of the situation, and he further desired to enter his protest against the injustice of making their manager suffer for a failure for which he had in no way been shown to be responsible. But the shareholders refused to even consider Colonel Thorpe's request, and both the president and the secretary exhausted their eloquence in eulogizing his value to the company. As a compromise, it was finally decided to continue operations in British Columbia for another season. Colonel Thorpe declared that the reforms and reorganization schemes inaugurated by Ranald would result in great reductions in the cost of production, and that Ranald should be given opportunity to demonstrate the success or failure of his plans, and further the political situation doubtless would be more settled. The wisdom of this decision was manifested later. The spirit of unrest and dissatisfaction appeared again at the next annual meeting, for while conditions were improving, dividends were not yet forthcoming. Once again Colonel Thorpe successfully championed Ranald's cause, this time insisting that a further test of two seasons be made, prophesying that not only would the present deficit disappear, but that their patience and confidence would be amply rewarded. Yielding to pressure and desiring to acquaint himself with actual conditions from personal observation, Colonel Thorpe concluded to visit British Columbia the autumn preceding the annual meeting which was to succeed Ranald's period of probation. Therefore it was that Colonel Thorpe found himself on the coast steamship Oregon, approaching the city of Victoria. He had not enjoyed his voyage, and was consequently in no mood to receive the note which was handed him by a brisk young man at the landing. "'Who's this from, Pat?' said the colonel, taking the note. "'Mike, if you please, Michael Cole, if you don't mind, and the note is from the boss, Mr. MacDonald, who has gone up the country and can't be here to welcome you.' "'Gone up the country?' roared the colonel. "'What the blank blank does he mean by going up the country at this particular time?' But Mr. Michael Cole was quite undisturbed by the colonel's wrath. "'You might find the reason in the note,' he said coolly, and the colonel, glaring at him, opened the note and read. "'My dear Colonel Thorpe, I am greatly disappointed in not being able to meet you. The truth is I only received your letter this week. Our mails are none too prompt, and so I have been unable to rearrange my plans.' I find it necessary to run up the river for a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thinking that possibly you might like to see something of our country, I have arranged that you should join the party of the lieutenant governor on their trip to the interior, and which will take only about four weeks' time. The party are going to visit the most interesting districts of our country, including both the famous mining district of Caribou and the beautiful valley of the Okanagan. Mr. Cole, my clerk, will introduce you to Mr. Blair, our Member of Parliament for Westminster, who will present you to the rest of the party. 
Mr. Blair, I need not say, is one of the brightest business men in the West. I shall meet you at Yale on your return. If it is absolutely impossible for you to take this trip, and necessary that I should return at once, Mr. Cole will see that a special messenger is sent to me, but I would strongly urge that you go, if possible. With kind regards. Look here, young man, yelled the colonel. Do you think I've come all this way to go gallivanting around the country with any blank, blank royal party? I don't know, colonel, said young Cole brightly, but I tell you I'd like mighty well to go in your place. And where in the nation is your boss, and what's he after, anyway? He's away up the river looking after business, and pretty big business, too, said Coley, not at all overawed by the colonel's wrath. Well, I hope he knows himself, said the colonel. Oh, don't make any mistake about that, colonel, said young Cole. He always knows where he's going and what he wants, and he gets it. But the colonel made no reply, nor did he deign to notice Mr. Michael Cole again until they arrived at the new Westminster landing. The boss didn't know, said Coley, approaching the colonel with some degree of care, whether you would like to go to the hotel or to his rooms. You can take your choice. The hotel is not of the best, and he thought perhaps you could put up with his rooms. All right, said the colonel. I guess they'll suit me. The colonel made no mistake in deciding for Ranald's quarters. They consisted of two rooms that formed one corner of a long, wooden, single-story building in the shape of an L. One of these rooms Ranald made his dining-room and bedroom, the other was his office. The rest of the building was divided into three sections, and constituted a dining-room, reading-room, and bunk-room for the men. The walls of these rooms were decorated not inartistically with a few colored prints and with cuts from illustrated papers, many and diverse. The furniture throughout was home-made, with the single exception of a cabinet organ which stood in one corner of the reading-room. On the windows of the dining-room and bunk-room were green roller blinds, but those of the reading-room were draped with curtains of flowered muslin. Indeed, the reading-room was distinguished from the others by a more artistic and elaborate decoration, and by a greater variety of furniture. The room was evidently the pride of the company's heart. In Ranald's private room the same simplicity in furniture and decoration was apparent, but when the colonel was ushered into the bedroom, his eye fell at once upon two photographs, beautifully framed, hung on each side of the mirror. Hello, guess I ought to know this, he said, looking at one of them. Coley beamed. You do, eh? Well, then, she's worth knowing, and there's only one of her kind. Don't know about that, young man, said the colonel, looking at the other photograph. Here's one that ought to go in her class. Perhaps, said Coley doubtfully. The boss thinks so, I guess, from the way he looks at it. Young man, what sort of fellow's your boss? said the colonel, suddenly facing Coley. What sort? Coley thought a moment. Well, twould need a good education to tell, but there's only one in his class, I tell you. Then he owes it to this little woman, pointing to one of the photographs, and she, pointing to the other, said so. Then you may bet it's true. I don't bet on a sure thing, said the colonel, his annoyance vanishing in a slow smile, his first since reach'ing the province. Dinner'll be ready in half an hour, sir, said Coley, 
swearing allegiance in his heart to the man that agreed with him in regard to the photograph that stood with coley for all that was highest in humanity john he said sharply to the chinese cook got good dinner eh pity good said john indifferently now look here john him big man john was not much impressed awful big man i tell you big soldier john preserved a stolid countenance john said the exasperated coley i'll kick you across this room and back if you don't listen to me want big dinner heap good eh uh-huh belly good replied john with a slight show of interest i say john what you got for dinner eh asked coley changing his tactics ham eggs lice answered the mongolian imperturbably gee whiz said coley going to feed the boss's uncle on ham and eggs what said john with sudden interest uncle boss eh yes said the unblushing coley huh coley heap fool get chicken quick meat shop small eh the chinaman was at last aroused pots pans and other utensils were in immediate requisition a roaring fire set to going and in three-quarters of an hour the colonel sat down to a dinner of soup fish and fowl with various entrees and side dishes that would have done credit to a new york chef thus potent was the name of the boss with his cook john's excellent dinner did much to soothe and mollify his guest but the colonel was sensitive to impressions other than the purely gastronomic for throughout the course of the dinner his eyes wandered to the photographs on the wall and in fancy he was once more in the presence of the two women to whom he felt pledged in ranald's behalf it's a one-horse lookin' country though he said to himself and no place for a man with any snap best thing would be to pull out i guess and take him along and it was in this mind that he received the honorable archibald blair m p p for new westminster president of the british columbia canning company recently organized and a director in half a dozen other business concerns colonel thorpe this is mr blair of the british columbia canning company said coley with a curious suggestion of ranald in his manner glad to welcome a friend of mr macdonald's said mr blair a little man of about thirty with a shrewd eye and a kindly frank manner well i guess i can say the same said colonel thorpe shaking hands i judge his friends are of the right sort you'll find plenty in this country glad to class themselves in that list laughed mr blair i wouldn't undertake to guarantee them all but those he lists that way you can pretty well bank on he's a young man for reading men yes said the colonel interrogatively he's very young young for that matter so are we all especially on this side the water here it's a young man's country pretty young i judge said the colonel dryly lots of room to grow yes thank providence said mr blair enthusiastically but there's lots of life and lots to feed it but i'm not going to talk colonel it is always wasted breath on an easterner i'll let the country talk you are coming with us of course hardly think so my time is rather limited and well to tell the truth i'm from across the line and don't cater much to your royalties royalties exclaimed mr blair oh you mean our governor well that's good rather must tell the governor that mr blair laughed long and loud you'll forget all about that when you are out with us an hour 
no we think it well to hedge our government with dignity but on this trip we shall leave the gold lace and red tape behind how long do you propose to be gone about four weeks but i make you a promise if after the first week you want to return from any point i shall send you back with all speed but you won't want to i guarantee you that why my dear sir think of the route and mr blair went off into a rapturous description of the marvels of the young province its scenery its resources its climate its sport playing upon each string as he marked the effect upon his listener by the time mr blair's visit was over the colonel had made up his mind that he would see something of this wonderful country next day coley took him over the company's mills and was not a little disappointed to see that the colonel was not impressed by their size or equipment in coley's eyes they were phenomenal and he was inclined to resent the colonel's lofty manner the foreman mr urquhart a shrewd scotchman who had seen the mills of the ottawa river and those in michigan as well understood his visitor's attitude better and besides it suited his scotch nature to refuse any approach to open admiration for anything out of the old land his ordinary commendation was it's no that bad and his superlative was expressed in the daring concession ay it'll maybe die it micht be war so he followed the colonel about with disparaging comments that drove coley to the verge of madness when they came to the engine-room which was urquhart's pride the climax was reached it's a wee bit o a place and no fit for the wark said urquhart ushering the colonel into a snug little engine-room where every bit of brass shone with dazzling brightness and every part of the engine moved in smooth sweet harmony slick little engine said the colonel with discriminating admiration it's no that bad the new but you should a seen it before jem there took a hand at it a wheezin rattlin patchin thing that you micht expect a flee in bits for the noise and the wame of it but jemmy sorted it till it's nae despicable for its size but it's no fit for the wark jemmy la just get its fill and we'll pit the saw into a log said urquhart as they went up into the sawing-room where in a few minutes the colonel had an exhibition of the saw sticking fast in a log for lack of power man yon's a lad that kens his trade he's frae glasgow he earns his money's worth how did you come to get him said the colonel moved to interest by urquhart's unwonted praise indeed just the way we've got all our best men it's the boss picked him oot o the gutter and there he is earnin his twa and a half a day the boss did that eh said the colonel with one of his swift glances at the speaker ay that he did and he's only one o many he's good at that sort of business i guess ay he kens men as ye can see fra his gang doesn't seem to be able to make the company's business pay ventured the colonel do you think you could find one that could pointing to the halting saw and that's the machine that turned out the piles yonder gi him a chance though and when the stuff is disposed of you'll get your profit urquhart knew what he was about and the colonel went back with coley to his rooms convinced of two facts that the company had a plant that might easily be improved but a manager that in the estimation of those who wrought with him was easily first in his class ranald could have adopted no better plan for the enhancing of his reputation than by allowing colonel thorpe to go in and out among the workmen and his friends 
more and more the colonel became impressed with his manager's genius for the picking of his men and binding them to his interests and as this impression deepened he became the more resolved that it was a waste of good material to retain a man in a country offering such a limited scope for his abilities but after four weeks spent in exploring the interior from quenelle to okanagan and in the following in and out the waterways of the coastline the colonel met ranald at yale with only a problem to be solved and he lost no time in putting it to his manager how in thunder can i get those narrow-gauge hide-bound easterners to launch out into business in this country i can't help you there colonel i've tried and failed by the great sam so you have said the colonel with a sudden conviction of his own limitations in the past no use trying to tell him of this swinging his long arm toward the great sweep of the fraser valley clothed with a mighty forest it's only a question of holdin on for a few years the thing's dead sure i have been through a good part of it said ranald quietly and i am convinced that here we have the pick of canada and i venture to say of the american continent timber hundreds of square miles of it fish i've seen that river so packed with salmon that i couldn't shove my canoe through hold on now said the colonel give me time simple sober truth of my own proving replied ranald and you saw a fringe of the mines up in the caribou the kootenay is full of gold and silver and in the okanagan you can grow food and fruits for millions of people i know what i am saying tell you what said the colonel you make me think you're speaking the truth anyhow then with a sudden inspiration he exclaimed by the great sammy i've got an idea and then as he saw ranald waiting added but i guess i'll let it soak till we get down to the mill do you think you could spare me colonel asked ranald in a dubious voice i really ought to run through a bit of timber here no by the great sam i can't i want you to come right along replied the colonel with emphasis what is he saying colonel asked mr blair wants to run off and leave me to paddle my way home alone not much i tell you what we have some important business to do before i go east you hear me and besides macdonald i want you for that big meeting of ours next week you simply must be there you flatter me mr blair not a bit you know there are a lot of hotheads talking separation and that sort of thing and i want some level-headed fellow who is in with the working men to be there and as it turned out it was a good thing for mr blair and for the cause he represented that ranald was present at the great mass meeting held in new westminster the next week for the people were exasperated beyond all endurance at the delay of the dominion in making good the solemn promises given at the time of confederation and were in a mood to listen to the proposals freely made that the useless bond should be severed railway or separation was the cry and resolutions embodying this sentiment were actually proposed and discussed it was ranald's speech everyone said that turned the tide his calm logic made clear the folly of even considering separation his knowledge of and his unbounded faith in the resources of the province and more than all his impassioned picturing of the future of the great dominion reaching from ocean to ocean knit together by ties of common interest and a common loyalty that would become more vividly real 
when the provinces had been brought more closely together by the promised railway they might have to wait a little longer but it was worth while waiting and there was no future in any other policy it was his first speech at a great meeting and as mr blair shook him warmly by the hand the crowd burst into enthusiastic cries macdonald macdonald and in one of the pauses a single voice was heard glengarry forever then again the crowd broke forth glengarry glengarry for all who knew ranald personally had heard of the gang that were once the pride of the ottawa at that old cry ranald's face flushed deep red and he had no words to answer his friend's warm congratulations send him east cried a voice yes yes that's it send him to ottawa to john a it's the same clan swiftly mr blair made up his mind gentlemen that is a good suggestion i make it a motion it was seconded in a dozen places and carried by a standing vote then ranald rose again and modestly protested that he was not the man to go he was quite unknown in the province we know you the same voice called out followed by a roar of approval and besides went on ranald it is impossible for me to get away i'm a working man and not my own master then the colonel who was sitting on the platform rose and begged to be heard mr chairman and gentlemen i ain't a canadian never mind you can't help that sang out a man from the back with a roar of laughter following but if i weren't an american i don't know anything that i'd rather be great applause four weeks ago i wouldn't have taken your province as a gift now i only wish uncle sam could persuade you to sell cries of he hasn't got money enough don't fool yourself but i want to say that this young man of mine pointing to ranald has given you good talk and if you want him to go east why i'll let him off for a spell loud cheers for the colonel and for macdonald a week later a great meeting in victoria endorsed the new westminster resolutions with the added demand that the railway should be continued to esquinald according to the original agreement another delegate was appointed to represent the wishes of the islanders and before ranald had fully realized what had happened he found himself a famous man and on the way to the east with the jubilant colonel what was the great idea colonel that struck you at yale inquired ranald as they were fairly steaming out of the esquinald harbor this is it my boy exclaimed the colonel slapping him on the back this here trip east now we've got em over the ropes by the great and everlasting sammy the form of oath indicating a climax in the colonel's emotion got who inquired ranald mystified them gall-blamed cross-road hayseeds down east and with this the colonel became discreetly silent he knew too well the sensitive pride of the man with whom he had to deal and he was chiefly anxious now that ranald should know as little as possible of the real object of his going to british columbia we've got to make the british american coal and lumber company know the time of day it's gittin up time out in this country they were talking a little of drawing out ranald gasped some of them only the colonel hastened to add but i want you to talk like you did the other night and i'll tell my little tale and if that don't fetch em then i'm a turk well colonel here's my word said ranald deliberately 
If the company wish to withdraw, they may do so. But my future is bound up with that of the West, and I have no fear that it will fail me. I stake my all upon the West. End of chapter 24